You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends, a Q1 Network production. I don't know about you, but here's how I hunt, how I fish, and how I farm. I go to Hornbacher's, which is about a mile from me, and they have fish, sometimes frozen, sometimes fresh. They have meat, they have vegetables, they have fruit, they have the frozen food section, they have spices, they got the diet beverages over here. They have, by the way, the adult beverage over there in the corner. That's where I hunt, that's where I fish, and that's where I farm. And I say that tongue-in-cheek because I think a lot of people, when they go to their local grocer, go to the local market, sometimes like me, I take for granted the great luxury and privilege I have to go in there, buy my food, and not think twice necessarily about how it got there and who worked so hard to get it there and who took risks to get it there. And that whole supply chain thing that starts from the farmer and his land or her land and what they did to make that possible for me to be able to enjoy the bounties of their work. And that's a pretty good deal for me. I think it's really important for us to hear from folks that are involved in this passionately, have been for a long time. They're also very entrepreneurial and they love what they do and they're passionate about the industry. So I'm really, really blessed and lucky to have with me today a returning member to Mike Seminary and Friends, by the way, Tom Campbell, who's originally from the Grafton, North Dakota area, and as part of the Campbell Brothers Farms and other ventures, by the way. And then Wayne Rempel, who is the president and CEO of Croker Farms, which is in Winkler, Manitoba, Canada. And I've had the great privilege to get to know him, frankly, through a Bible study. So Tom and Wayne, welcome to Mike's Seminary and Friends. It's great to see you. Thank you for taking time to join me. How are you today? And I'm going to start with you, Wayne. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me on. It's a pleasure. I'm glad you're here. Tom, how are you? Things are going very, very well. Um, starting harvest and um, just just doing everything is, is going very well right now in, in my life. So I'm very blessed and fortunate. And as Bert Johnson would say, uh, if he'd be any better, be a runaway. so speaking of harvest in your both of you primarily are in the potato production business right correct Um, that's probably our core business but we have a lot of as long as wayne have a lot of other and rotational crops that we grow as well wheat and beans and corn and so forth and and wayne yeah we do uh uh mainly potatoes and some uh, other rotational crops, but they're all organic. So part of our potato production is organic, and then that leads into the side deals of doing the rotation with other crops. Wayne, I want to ask you a question, and this is right out of the shoots. And ever since I've known about you and Croker Farms, I've been wanting to ask this question. The uh, and and I. Please take the liberty to give some of the background on this wonderful family operation. If it's how it started, I'm, I think it still is. I'm not sure. But you've been with the company since 1988. And the, the roots go back to 1876. You've been the CEO since 2002. And you're the first non-family member that's the CEO of Croker Farms. But my question is this. It is one of the largest organic farms uh, in the country. And I don't know if that's North America to help me understand exactly what organic farming is compared to farmers that are not organically based like you. What's the biggest difference? Well, the biggest difference is that we can, a great organic farm cannot use uh, synthetic fertilizers or pesticides. It all has to be natural or um, organic, we say, but it all has to be done without synthetic uh, inputs. And so that's the, and it takes uh, three years to transition a field from 
from conventional to organic. And once it's organic, fine. But uh, you have to, but you have to keep it up to stay in the organic regime once you're in it. So with those uh, those acres, how long has Croker been uh, organic? Well, I, I became CEO in uh, 2002, and that's also the year that we started our organic experiment. And it started with just a very small, uh, small field, very poor field. And uh, and every year we kind of doubled it in size, and and now we're growing uh, quite a lot of acres. We're probably yeah, one of the largest, or certainly the largest organic farm, and and one of the largest in the U.S. as well. So. Wow. So that means, again, back to my ignorance, when you say you can't use artificial fertilizer or pesticides, is most of the fertilizer then organic in terms of its manure type fertilizer or what what other alternative would there be? Yeah, there's two options. One is manure. So we use a, we use a lot of manures, cattle manure mostly is what we use. And, uh, and we've also decided that we have to compost all that manure. So we don't just put raw manure on the ground. It has to be composted, which is the healthiest form for both the soil and for the environment. Raw manure has got a lot of runoff and other problems. So composting is the best option. Uh, and then, and so that's one way to get nutrients into the soil. And the other way is to plant. We, we grow three. Cro- we grow a three crop rotation. Year one is potatoes. Year two would be. Uh, another cash crop like hemp or beans or something. And year three is a plow down crop. So we grow uh, legumes to produce nitrogen and then, and then work them into the soil. So, so we do two, two, one or two crops for sure of uh, a plow down crop, which produces nitrogen, takes it out of the air and puts the nitrogen into the soil. And then uh, that's, that's one way to do it. We, I think nation of those two is the best, best way to farm organically. And has this been your, I'll get to you a second time, I apologize. Has this been your careers uh, since out of college or whatever? This You have been in the ag business your entire life? Uh, yeah, I have been. I grew up on a, a small little mixed uh, farm. My dad had a pretty small farm and and I always enjoyed working on it. I was kind of more the farmer than my dad was. Uh, and uh, and then I worked for some farm supply as an, as an agronomist and i've always been in culture and then it started with Quaker farms back in the 80s so so i've been there for a long time tom you you started thank you wayne tom you started as a high school kid when it's all said and done uh you didn't come from much of a farming family up in grafton but you and i think your brother you you started when you were real young right we we did it with potatoes right out of high school and we grew up on a a real small my dad was a full-time mail carrier and he had a small part-time farm and so we uh we ended up starting potatoes and started farming ourselves from scratch right out of high school and kind of expanded from there it's been a good starting with that we appreciate the new equipment and the things that we didn't have when we were young starting so we bought a full line of potato equipment in 1977 for nine thousand dollars and after we purchased, we, we found out it was, it, it worked, got the job done, but it was pretty much junk. So it, we had to become pretty mechanical. And back then the equipment was pretty easy to fix. It wasn't electronic or anything. So it was just mechanical, common sense stuff. But uh, it, it's really made me appreciate when I see new equipment on our farm now, what we started with, which was just broke down all of You couldn't make one round and harvest or anything it was broke. And um, so, uh, so yeah, it was a, it just makes us appreciate the modernized equipment and the size of it. Just amazing how mm-hmm. and, and GPS and the technology is taking over in equipment. Back then, a lot of farmers didn't expand because it took too long to till land. You know, plowing was a major deal and combining. Now, it, it, the tillage part for most farmers is is, is uh, irrelevant. You can cover with the equipment and combines and custom combines. That's not the reason you don't expand like back then we did so it's really changed in 40 years or so this is totally off the subject i saw this on the news i'm going to come back to you in a second time to ask about uh, organic or otherwise in your operations 
I saw on the news, as, as you guys know, we live in the Fargo Moorhead area, actually in West Fargo. There's a young kid, he's in high school over in Kent, Minnesota area. He was being interviewed because he's always wanted to be a farmer. I don't think his family is in the agriculture business. So he goes and works in other people's farms and he's been buying equipment. And that is what he wants to do. He wants to be a farmer. And during the interview, the reporter talked about one of the things the kid consistently hears, are you crazy? And when I heard that, I just, I, I got mad because I'm one of these guys. I don't care if you want to be a doctor, a football player, a farmer, a mechanic. I don't care what it is you want to be. When somebody says that you're crazy because there's a dream that you have, you're passionate about something, that just always drives me nuts. And particularly drives me nuts when the kid wants to be a farmer because Barry Batchelor, Barry Batchelor, I don't know if you've met him, Wayne, he's a very successful entrepreneur in North Dakota, attached to the ag industry, shared this information the other day at a press conference. In 1776, 98% of the population of this country were all involved in agriculture. Now it's 2%, 2%. So I thought, I want this kid to be a farmer. So back to you, Tom. I'm sure I went off there. In your operation, do you incorporate or organics? Um, and whether you do or not, I don't know if it's relevant, but do you incorporate uh, uh, organics? We, we do. We started about not as far back as Wayne. And Wayne had actually encouraged me <clears throat> to get into it. We probably involved in maybe 12 or so years and a very similar situation to Wayne. It's except we don't compost. We, we've got a little bit different rules in the United States. The organic associations, we can do chili nitrate, We can do a little bit different things. So, but, um, you know, Wayne has taken it to the next level, but we do organic. We've cut about, about seven, 800 acres of our farm. Okay. We like it. It's, it's, it's a good, uh, good diversion, uh, diversification. Yep. So, uh, so I'm going to ask both of you and, Wayne, you can answer it first. What are the real advantages of organics? And then two part, the second part of my question would be this. If you have, uh, let's say, a section of land over here that's all organic, do how do the surrounding properties, the other, you know, the four pieces of land surrounding that section, how do they have to be handled to protect the integrity of that organic section of land. So I'll go to you first, Wayne. Yeah, so the organic regime, which all the rules behind the organic production system, uh, says that you have to, is things included, and uh, it's very comprehensive, but you have to have a buffer of a certain amount of feet between conventional and organic, and it's very closely monitored. So we're trying to, we try to have our organic in large blocks, don't have too many buffer borders, so. So that would prevent cross-pollination of whatever is over there from in, infecting or impacting the organic. Yeah, it's mostly spray drift is the big issue that if the oh. farmer is spraying, you want to avoid that. And then, Tom, the first part of the question, what's the real advantage of having a part of your operation or all organic? Well, the, the bottom line is revenue. You know, you traditionally get less yields maybe one third or so less yields or half production and you get traditionally double the price um we've increased our yields and and the price has come down somewhat but still it's, it's basically gross revenue and it's just a diversification and uh, and a lot of our customers we got into for the potatoes a lot of our customers were demanding it on split loads you could throw one or two pallets of organic on a load of conventional potatoes so and plus we just wanted to we knew that I think it's increasing four or five percent a year, and it's kind of a new coming thing. It's increasing, and we just wanted to be involved with something like that. So it's mm -hmm. been a been a good move. And once you get hooked up and situated with it, it's it's become easier. The first few years, we had to go through a lot of challenges of you know um, bugs and potatoes, and you can't use insecticides and weed control and wheat. 
it's the simple things and you know without 240 spray for wheat uh, weeds is a major issue which you would never think it is if you grow traditional wheat and just a lot of things little things we've we've learned and uh, and wayne's been a big help he's been been a big mentor on a lot of things too because they're they're kind of pioneers on it and they're large scale and they do uh, they do a lot of things uh not i think so you know very very well and they're mentors to us I'm going to go back to how I open this with the great luxury and privilege I and so many people have when we decide to go, you know, either to an open market, to a grocery store, whatever it might be, to buy uh, our food, our, our groceries or fish, meat, whatever it might be. When I think about what I would say, probably the most important. And clearly, one of the original entrepreneurs is people involved in agriculture and farming. And I think about all the things that they have to deal with. And not that other entrepreneurs don't have a long list too, but I don't, I don't, I don't have to have a car. I don't have to have an iPhone. I don't have to have an iPad. I don't have to have this Diet Coke. I mean, there's a whole lot of things I don't have to have. I have to have food. I have to have water. So that's why I'm saying people in your business are probably the most important entrepreneurs. So here's the things I think of. Weather, prices, uh, prices for the crop, and then prices for all the inputs. Um, labor, parks, equipment, uh, global challenges, global competition other forms of competition that compete for uh, the, the dollar, government, uh, regulatory framework that you, you have so little control over, it comes your way, you have to deal with it. And, and there's probably others. That's an incredibly long list of things, most of which you can't control. Most of those you can't control. Why do you stay in agriculture? Tom, I'll go to you for why do you stay in agriculture? It's a good question. Um, one of the, it's interesting because I've been involved in this since 1977, actually a couple years before that. Um, we're fortunate to be blessed in in the United States and Canada where overproduction has been here forever with food. You know, whatever, two-thirds of half the world's third world countries, their biggest problem is starvation and they have underproduction. They don't have enough food. So consequently, when you're when you're blessed with natural re resources, you know, land and equipment and, and energy, and with overproduction comes usually marginal prices, uh, losses, and so forth. And we've been dealt with that our whole life. And without government subsidization, that's a whole other topic that you could spend hours on, whether it's you should or you shouldn't. Um, when I was campaigning for the United States Senate, I went around the United States, traveled, and one of the questions I asked a lot of farmers was, do you like government subsidization or crop insurance or both or none? And majority of the farmers, large and small and meat intermediate, all majority of them said that they would just assume not have, you know, government subsidization, but don't take away crop insurance. That was kind of the underlying tone that to take of the rate of the risk. But getting back to overproduction, I would say, you know, we're, we need to over market or oversell. And that's one thing in the potato business that I could do that. Um, you know, traditionally your commodity crops, wheat, corn, soybeans, and we're, we're price takers, not makers. And it's frustrating because you can do everything right. And as you had said, the, 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 the week of harvest or the day before you're ready for harvest, you know, the, the two uncontrollable factors in farming for my whole life that's very frustrating is the markets and the weather I cannot control. I can do everything right. I can spend $5,000 an acre in different states to grow and do everything right. But the markets and the weather, I can lose it all in just a few hours. And that's something that I don't like about farming. But that's something that I've always faced. Crop insurance takes some of the risk out. Not much. It, you'll never do that for profits, but it'll, it'll, it'll limit the losses of it, especially if, if, if different areas you've had multiple years of losses. So to answer your question, why I keep farming? It's hard to get out. Um, it takes so much capital for that young fellow you were talking about. It's virtually, not virtually, it, it's 100% impossible to start farming 
unless you have a rich uncle or capital or because nobody can start but, but between land and equipment and the, the resources and no bank will start, a, you know, will finance a beginning farmer because I'm involved in the banking industry too. So it's a, it, it's a high barrier of entry. And um, most farmers, if they had six or seven tough years, they really can't get out unless they file bankruptcy or something because the, the capital situation, they're, they're married to the farm. They don't farm for a living. They live to farm. And a lot of people like that. It was interesting. I read an article just uh, a little bit, but that farming, and I didn't know this, uh, suicide, farming is the highest industry with suicides, three to four times more than any other business. And I didn't know that. I, I found that kind of surprising. But then when I thought about it, probably not because it's a very frustrating industry. We are by far none. We'll, everybody will agree at this. The left, the right, the moderates, that food is the number one entity it's the number one business because as you had alluded to earlier, it's, it's, it, you know, energy, gasoline, um, housing, everything takes a second place to food because without food you're dead. And look at some of the primitive industries. That's what most people did was find food and hunt and fish majority of their day just to survive, to live. Once you build a house, it's built. But so we're in a unique situation with back to overproduction. We've been very, very blessed in the United States and, it's funny, like you said, how people take it for granted. We've done lots of studies. You know, Farm Bureau, North Dakota Farm Bureau, they do a little bit of an education. They try to take city kids into grocery stores and educate them on that, that where food really does come from, doesn't grow in a grocery store. And one of the things I've been involved in that little bit, that's the saddest thing is that not only do majority, probably 98% of children or the millennials or the next generation, and some people in our generation, not only do not know where food comes from, but they don't care because they have never been deprived. They never lived through the, the Great Depression in the 30s. They never lived like my parents did. And they've always had, it's the land of the plenty. So why worry about something that's always there? The only time anybody goes hungry in the United States is when they're on a diet like myself, because they've overeating, they overeat too much. Nobody knows what it's like to starve. I shouldn't say nobody, there's a few, but far, far majority of people. When starvation comes into play, it, there's other mental issues in our country than simply people starving and they're too poor. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a, my little synopsis of why you can't farm. You got too much capital and it's a lifetime. You just can't get in and out um, unless you go bankrupt. But it's it's hard to to get in and it's hard to get out when you have your whole life, all your balance sheet. You've you've making payments on land and equipment. It's a long term investment, and you have three or four tough years you, you really can't get out it, it's your your life's involved with it so you, you, you really can't yeah. wayne huh, thank you tom how about anything you want to add to that wayne uh wake what your question was why do you want to farm i thought uh, tom told us all the reasons why you're not to farm anyway what what i uh what, the reason I like farming, of course, is that food is necessity. Everything else we can live without. And um, although I love all the other stuff too, but but farm food is a necessity. So I, I love being part of that kind of industry. Uh, I've always had a green thumb. I like gardening on the side. I like taking care of my yard. So for me, it's just, I love seeing things grow. So that's just, for me, a huge uh, source of satisfaction. Yeah. At the end of the day, I, I, uh, I remember uh, I became a a very moderate NASCAR fan, but my favorite driver was Jeff Gordon. They asked him at a point, you know, Jeff, what is it that you like about racing? And he says, I realized recently, I've realized a long time ago, not racing that I like, it's winning. And so to me, that's, I love it, whatever I'm doing. So it's, that's what I love. That's a great answer. Um, Wayne, in a, a meeting that I was in, the other day, and actually a series of meetings the past week and a half that are all surrounding uh, an ongoing effort called Grand Farm. It's about the farm of the future, automation, new technology, so on and so on. And it's fascinating. I had learned that, I think it was one of those meetings, that the average age of a farmer in North Dakota is 57. And uh, unlike 
Croker, I don't know how many family members are still involved down here. The odds of there being a family member that will take over that farm, pretty small. It's pretty remote. So that's one of the reasons the introduction of even more technology is going to be so important for continued operations for th those types of situations I just discussed. Is that example in terms of the age who might take it over, is that similar up in Canada? It is. As a matter of fact, our neighboring probably heard the statistic for Saskatchewan and the average age of a farmer in Saskatchewan, I think I remember say, hearing was 64. That's that's crazy. And uh, well, But that's not the case on our farm. First of all, yes, we have no original family members are part of the farm anymore. Not, not no one. Oh. And no one's working there, hasn't for years. Uh, we have great young uh, managers and workers that we have. So we have great people working. Just things have changed though uh, over time. It used to be that that um, you could find lots of people to work on the farm to manage that would fix things that would, you know, with uh, with farm, especially especially in the North Country where we have such short seasons, you work day and night in the month of May to get things seeded and day and night in September to get it harvested. And so you work 16, 18 hours a day routinely and and the new younger people, just that lifestyle doesn't work for them anymore. And, and nobody wants that. And that's one of the reasons why people on the farm that's one of the biggest change in agriculture that we've experienced in canada here and i think it's probably other places too that you can't have you can't find people that can that want to do that kind of work and uh, and work that many hours so mm -hmm. so technology is important to the hours we need more equipment for it and but we need more sophisticated uh, workers you can't just have somebody who steers the tractor they have to understand more Thank you, Wayne. Do you want to add to that, Tom? Because then I want to I want to start getting into the technology advancements and some stuff that's coming down the pipe. Yeah, it, it's interesting in our corner, uh, you know, North Dakota. Um, we we're just at a, there's a potentially new French fry plant coming. They're looking at different regions of the United States, and so they had a roar meeting, and uh, it was 45 people, and maybe 30 different operations. And we have a lot of young people, which is great to see farming even though the average age i think was 58 or 59 there's a lot of next generations that are coming a lot of young people in their 20s and 30s and 40s that i see and, and a lot of them are that i know real well or my brother's two sons are interested in farming so it has changed but but wayne alluded to it right the eight to five like a banker job for farming they see that and they want to go to lakes and so forth so that's a big issue of the next generation where gosh i remember the first 20 years of my life weekends farming we we work all day saturdays and fridays and, and you know you were especially if you got caught in the rain where that it was it rained on a uh during the weekday and you were forced to work on weekends now you go up drive up on a saturday afternoon or even a friday afternoon excluding harvest um it's dead nothing's turning nobody's around it's just like a morgue everybody's gone or doesn't work it never used to be like that so it's the younger people that's like Wayne alluded to just want to have the quality of life, which is not 18 hours in the spring and the fall anymore. Yeah, that work-life balance thing is very, very important. And I get it. I'm older than both of you. I I, I remember one of, one of my mentors, I asked him, how did you get so successful? He said, you know, Mike, in the beginning, I, I only, you know, on a slow day, I only worked half a day. I just had to decide which 12 hours I was going to work. And that was on a slow day. And so um, that, that, that kind of mentality thinking probably isn't as present as it used to be, for, for better or for worse, but that's just the way it is, right? So given that, when I was at the Grand Farm uh, location, and I was so fascinated, I've I don't know a lot about technology, but I am a fan of it. I incorporate as much of it in my life as I can, but I like observing. I was fascinated by what the drones were doing. I was fascinated by the autonomous trucks. I was fascinated by the autonomous tractors. 
And so my, my so my questions with regards to the introduction of more technology, which is coming, and clearly there's a big need for it. What are some of those upcoming introductions to your industry that you think will be most welcome by, you know, in your own operations and your colleagues that you connect with on a regular basis? Which ones do you think it'll be? Will it be the autonomous, completely autonomous uh, tractor, the seeders, the tiller, the uh, the completely autonomous combine? What do you think is going to be the most readily acceptable into operations? Wayne? I, yeah, I think autonomous uh, vehicles are coming for sure. And I think it's going to be a standard. It just, they'll, they'll, that's just, everybody's going to have it. I think the most uh, biggest uh, advantage in technology will be understanding what's happening in different parts of the field with drones, uh, with other kinds of, uh, but like every, you take an 80 acre field and it's not perfectly the same. So in, um, in the past, when we had a, when you have a good farmer farming it, he makes changes from one end of the field to the other, but based on what he sees and experiences, it's uh, farming isn't isn't so much an industry or a science that way. It's an art that way that you have to make adjustments. And so now with us having less people like that available, we'll need technology to be able to make those same same decisions. So I think that's that's where we'll need uh, we'll need technology plus transition from this art to uh, to uh, to a science. So let me shoot back to you what I think I heard. The to make up for the the actual butt in the seat operator that makes adjustments on the fly based on his his or her knowledge of the landscape and ability to see, they can make adjustments to make sure the equipment's operating as efficiently as possible and getting the best return for whatever that means. So for that to be replaced, not only would the autonomous equipment be required, there would also have to be a way for all the data to be acquired on the fly. Um, and it's going to be pumped to somewhere, not just on the piece of equipment that's doing the work, but also a place for the, the farmer, the person that owns or is managing property for them to still kind of monitor it to make sure that it's doing what it, what they used to do when they were, had their butt in the seat. Did I hear that correctly? Exactly. So there's that part of it for sure that, that this can all happen. And the part that I hadn't mentioned yet that's important as well is that uh, I think we're coming to an age where we'll have to justify how much fertilizer we use at different parts of the field. And, and those kinds of things will have to be, you, you can't, I mean, ideal field deserves different fertilizer for different parts, different soil types. And I think uh, we've seen these environmental laws coming into Europe and we've heard about the green movement there. And it's clearly it's coming to North America as well. And we'll have to be able to justify the pesticides we put on if we, we won't be allowed to put pesticides on unnecessarily and and fertilizers. So it'll have to all be justified. And the only way to do it was with technology. Mm. What would you, what, thanks Wayne. What would you like to add, Tom? Um, Wayne's right on. We're already, there's a lot of technology that's been in place, like fertilizer spreading, big spreaders with the uh, soil sampling. They'll do that. It'll change rates throughout the field many different times. So we're, we're already kind of there in a lot of that stuff. Um, as far as, you know, labor, our, our packing sheds, we've um, bought a lot of robotic robotic stackers, electronic graders, because we've had to, because that's that's really hard to find labor. That's That used to be a labor-intense operation, you know, packing houses where you're sizing and grading potatoes and stacking them. So we're doing everything we can there. Um, but as far as, you know, the tractors, autonomous, you know, we've had autonomous um, tractors for, gosh, 20 years. I think that was a number one industry for many, many years. You still have to have an operator and a tractor, but liability issues kept it from having an operatorless tractor. And now there's, we're, I think it's going to really fast track it and eliminate that. But I don't think that's going to save as many people because you've got a 
you know, 70 foot cultivator or these, this large equipment, you know, one operator can cover massive acres compared to the old days. It wasn't that way. Um, other than packing equipment and houses like that there, you can save a lot of labor. But um, I think one of the biggest things that I'm scared of is our industry is so linked to transportation trucks. And that's an industry that we're losing drivers. Um, the average age of the overall truck driver is like 15 or six years old. Nobody wants to drive that. That's the quality of life there is pretty tough. So that concerns me more because you can grow all the wheat and corn and soybeans and potatoes you want. But if you can't get it to the market without transportation, you've done it in vain. And that I think we need to focus more on to help the farmers is over the road trucking. A certain percentage of us hauling rail, of course, the commodities, but and some potatoes, but still we're, we resort to the over the road truck. And because we load sometimes eight to 12 a day and for potatoes and wow, that's, that's become a, a very challenged industry of trucks. You know, one third of them can't back up probably, you know, one third of them can't speak English, which is okay. As long as you can get loaded and put it in forward. But that scares me more than anything because the farming we've, I think we've reached a big plateau of the big labor savings point that, um, yeah. And we, we, equipment will continue to get bigger and save, but I think we've reached the point where it's, we've, we've almost maxed out on the labor issues for farming because of the large equipment. So uh, are you implying that the, the it continued advancements of technology might not replace a human being, but it will clearly enhance their ability to continue doing their job or, or am I misunderstanding that? I'm saying that, you know, we've already covered big ground of the, you know, the old 20 years ago, the small equipment and it took a lot of laborers, you know, the Bonanza farms, it was, they had thousands of men and cattle, you know, or horses to run it. We've made huge uh, advances with technology and the size of equipment, you know, that the size of equipment now is just unbelievably massive, but with one driver can the amount of acres he can cover and it'll keep getting a little bit bigger, but I think we've, we've had the, the big acceleration has we've reached that already the maximization of that other than like packing houses or sortings and stuff but I, like i said i i think trucking it, it needs to be autonomous sooner or later than autonomous tractors autonomous tractors we pretty much have that now for the most part um so it's the the, the, num- the raw numbers of people the labor is needed is nothing like it used to be but transportation concerns me because we see it I think Wayne, you'd agree too. Maybe not quite as bad because you got a little bit of an advantage on transportation with Canadian drivers versus us, but that concerns me. And it's been that way for many, many years. Is is getting? We've sometimes have had to miss loads, and it's uh, it's 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 become a challenge. Do any of you three want to be an overload truck driver and the quality of life? I drove our first one when I was eighteen, and it, it's no fun unless you're really into that. It's and there's less and less people that want to do that industry than farming. No, I don't want to be that person. Uh, I, I appreciate the people that do, but I, I don't want to do that. Let me ask you this question, and I'll go, start with you, Wayne. The Whatever new technology could be introduced to uh, your operation, or, or Tom's for that matter, at some point in time, I mean, there's always a budgetary consideration. If If I add this piece of equipment or this technology that makes me this much more efficient, but the cost is pretty significant because new technology is always pretty expensive, especially early on. How how do you make that decision with regards to uh, adding it to what you're currently doing, adding it to your business plan? And and the, how do you, how are you going to weigh the, uh, it, or is it going to be like anything else? There's got to be the cost-benefit ratio. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Right. Yeah. So for us, be, being in organic production, of course, very labor-intensive in a lot of ways because the weeds are, you have to get take care of, if you can't take care of them mechanically, you have to do it uh, manually. And so it could be that we'd say, well, it take costs so and so much to do the with people manually and so and so much to buy this equipment and let's do the, who do the breakdown of the cost and it's easy to figure out. And that's that's a pretty simple calculation. You can do that. But when you can't get people, now all of a sudden you have to buy the machine if you just want to, if you 
do it. it. If you can't get people, you either stop the enterprise of growing organic onions, for example, is such tiny little plants, takes a lot of manual labor and some great equipment that we use for this. But if we couldn't, didn't have that, just wouldn't grow it. It just would. So it used to be a, just a, a, a formula. Do I choose this or choose that? Now it's uh, now it's quite different. Now it's just we have to have it. Mm. Yeah, I didn't realize until Tom addressed this early on that how significantly lower yields were. Uh, for an organic operation, at least in some, maybe the crops you, you guys are involved in. I don't know if that's the case for all. Um, and so that the consumer has to be really willing to pay a significantly higher price for uh, the organic product they want to consume. And I see that, by the way, when, like I'm a big banana guy. And this is going to sound really sophomoric, but this is what I do. I want my bananas a particular shade of yellow. I'm not going to buy a banana that's got a whole bunch of green on it because I, here's what I know. By the time it gets ripe enough for me to eat it, it's going to be overripe. And I, I hate that. I just don't like it. And so I'm really, really picky about the bananas I pick. Well, every once in a while I go and the whole, the, the whole rack, they're all green. But I look over at the organics and they have a whole bunch of yellow ones and they're significantly more expensive and they won't let you separate them. That's the other thing they do. They put this little binder on it. So I just want three or four at a time because I, that's the number of days I'm going to let them sit around because they're going to get too yellow. I mean, too overly ripe. And I can do it, but they will not let me do that. Now I know why it's you guys. That's tongue in cheek. You guys don't grow bananas. Um, so going yes, back to you, so or your operation or any organic operation, for sure in Canada, is far more labor intensive because you're really limited to technologies or applications. So you have far more people involved in your operation, right? Right, exactly. Well, I mean, there's, I just should explain maybe in the organic uh the organic uh, agriculture has got maybe a, a bit of a black eye because a lot of farmers see organic production and those are the you can easily find an organic field because that's the field with all the weeds in it and that that used to be the way to grow organics that you just have tons of weeds you let it grow whatever you have whatever's left over is what you get and still there's a lot of organic production like that and that's why i think organic has a bit of a black eye from that we we of course been in this for a while and we really believe strongly that if you don't do it right it's not going to work out well so we have a zero weed policy there's no weeds in our organic we just we just don't believe in letting weeds dump seed uh we our organic field we think should look just as good as our conventional fields and hmm. and for the most part they do and and i have to say our organic yields are the same as our conventional yields now we do it's intensive management lots of compost and all those things are a big part of it. So we have to invest, but it can be done right. So so the this fa fallacy that organic is always way lower yield, a messy uh, field, that's not necessarily the case. Okay. By the way, I'm a little experienced, a little experienced when it comes to weeds and hoeing. I think I told this to Tom once back in the early 70s. Uh, in the valley, the there were a lot of problems with weeds at, at, about midway through the season for the beet growers. At the time, almost everyone that worked the fields hoeing the weeds were was migrant labor, and they had moved on to other operations. So they did this testing. Let's get some local kids out, and I needed some money, so I went out and did that. I. Um, and I asked one time, at the time he was Governor Dalrymple, who has been in beets and potatoes, everything. I asked him how that worked, and he said it worked fairly well. And he said, um, most of the guys, we could never have used them earlier in the growing season because they probably couldn't have told the difference because they didn't have the experience between the weed 
and the beat. So when you when you guys went out in the field, meaning me and the other guys that went out to hold the beats, the beat was big enough so you could tell the difference between the beat and the weed. So I have a somewhat of an appreciation for first of all how hard that work is, and how, how and the skill that it really takes to make that work well. Um, let me ask you this question about going back to the future of the industry. If we have fewer people interested for, for a variety of reasons and the cost of the operation never really gets lower it's because it, it involves land, the price of land is always expensive, inputs are expensive, equipment is, everything is pretty expensive. Where, what do you think the future is for a lot of the operators that you're familiar with um, given that you have some of those constraints they're dealing with, what, what do you see happening 10, 15, even 20 years down the road? Uh, and I'll start with you, Tom. You know, the legislators are, our elected officials um, will never let farmers fail, in essence, if things, because everything cycles. You get your good years and your bad years. And right now we're in some good quantity years, but that'll cycle. Um, uh, I, I think it's going to be probably similar as the past. You know, the farms are going to continue to get bigger and bigger. Um, and you'll see some subsidization and it'll probably change for dis big disasters in certain areas where the government will step in for, you know, uh, one shot here and there. But um, the farmers will probably be less subsidized. Crop insurance, I think, will always stay. But that's subsidized, too, in essence. A lot of people don't realize that it's subsidized for 50% of your premiums by the government. Um, so I think it's going to be a lot of the similar, the same thing. Um, farmers are becoming larger, more business orientated. Um, they're becoming smarter. Uh, the younger generation's coming in. And uh, I think it'll be just a lot of the same. I think if you just fast forward, I, I think, I don't know, maybe, what do you think, Wayne? I, it may, may be different. But, uh, so, sorry, Mike, what was the question again? It, essentially, it was if the average age of the farmer keeps going up, there are fewer and fewer family members or people even interested in in the industry, particularly given the work-life balance thing that so many people are looking for today. Input costs are incredibly high in the industry. Where, where do you see it going in the next 10, 15, 20 years in terms of who's operating, who's owning, that kind of thing? I agree with Tom that uh, operations will get uh, bigger and, and stuff I, I think that one of the one of the things that will happen you can't afford as much risk anymore and i know in, in u.s there's a better crop insurance program in canada it's not there it's our crop insurance is pretty poor and so what we've done on on our farm is we've tried really hard to eliminate risk tom said the two big problems is market and weather and we've worked really hard at eliminating the markets we can't do much about but weather whether we think we can do a significant amount. And it's maybe hard to believe, but we have on our farm, we believe in drain tile, but not percent of or more of our land is drain tiled. Uh, we are almost 70% irrigated. So we can, we can control the dry years that we can irrigate the wet years we can tile and in our country, it's either wet or dry. It's hardly ever perfect. So, so we, we, I think that eliminating that risk, uh, we've also done, uh, I've always said that a, a big rain event should not do any damage. So we've worked hard at leveling every field. There should be no no low spot on any field that should be drained without drainage ditches. So so we've done things like that to try to eliminate risk that way. So I'm not sure if it answers the question exactly. Oh, it, do, it does. So when you, uh, when you looked at incorporating that in the business plan for Croker, and I'm assuming a large part of that was uh, under your leadership because you've been the CEO for since 2002. You cranked the numbers and said, look, it's going to cost, the, the, here's the investment, the initial upfront investment. And it's, it's a pretty big number. Um, but here is the data. Here's what it says it will do. I'm convinced it will do that. It will give us better yields. We'll have uh, less impacts from weather. We have a better ability to drain the water off. We'll have, we'll, we'll, all of that. You, you, you crunched the numbers in the business plan. And I suspect had 
consultants, probably engineers or somebody giving you some direction and you made the investment. Right. Yeah, sorry, sorry Mike. Uh, your voice stopped. I couldn't hear the last part. Oh, we, you yeah, said. we had it. We, we got dumped out. So you did you have consultants help you make those decisions that you put that in the business plan or is all you? Well, we I wish I could say we had some consultants, but really we just uh, we looked at the long. I, I've always been a big believer in looking at the long and uh, looking farther ahead, projecting 15, 20 years down the road, what, what is going to be super important. And so we've really invested in that for the future. That, yeah, right now it's hard to pay that off, but in the future, it's going to be the right thing to do. And I, st I still really strongly believe that, that in the future we have to have, as things get more and more expensive, we just can't afford losses. And so we have to have great quality and, uh, and also protection against disasters. Here's, here's my last question. And it has to do with rec recruiting the talent that will be required over time to be inserted into the operations to make sure that the legs are still there, that it's still, you know, Campbell Brothers Farm operation, it's still the Croker Family Farms operation. Uh, what, what kind of process do you use to identify talent early enough in, in their development and start visiting with them to see if they have an interest in being involved. It, do you do something like that? And I'll start with you, Wayne. Yeah, we do a lot of, uh, we spend a lot of time uh, working on hiring the right people. Our philosophy always is, uh, is uh, um, hire character and train for skill. So if we find somebody who's got the right character, we jump on them, whether we have an opening or not. We just, we just want to get that person as part mm. of our company. Now we do have, we do have lots of um, young people working for us and, and pretty sophisticated. Like we just started a lean menu, a, a lean consultant is working for us to help our, our packing plant to be more efficient. And so it's stuff like that was an industry kind of thing. And we're looking at that kind of stuff for agriculture. And I think it's really important that, mm. that we are pro progressive in that way. That's, I love that answer. You just reminded me of somebody that I used to work for who was, um, sometimes at odds with his partners in the business, in a very successful business, big, big footprint. And every once in a while, they would say, like, I'm going to look at Tom. Why did you hire Tom? What's he, what's he going to do for us? And he said, it's not what he's going to do for us right now. I don't want to compete against him. I'm going to find the right place, but I don't want to compete against that guy. And you don't either. So because he, he saw talent and he's going to make sure that he'd find a place for him in that computer. How about you, Tom, with regards to the question I just asked? You're on mute, Tom. That's that's true in every industry, you know, hire for character and train for skill and in every sales. We've always said that for sales, give me a car salesman or give me a vacuum cleaner salesman and I'll train him to sell potatoes. Um, and the question, to repeat the question again, I kind of lost, it was a, uh, a great reply from Wayne. What was the original question? I, I said, what, what kind of processes or systems might you be using to identify talent that you want to incorporate in your operation now to make sure you have long-term uh, people that are involved in the operation? That was good. I, I paraphrased it, but that's what I asked. Unfortunately, you know, rural America some of the positions you, you have to be there. Um, some of them can be, you know, remote, but so you have to get somebody that, that is almost has been born and raised in that rural community ag. And that's, it's a challenge because we've, we've fought that for a lot of different positions and sometimes you have to compromise because there's not a lot of very educated or, or highly motivated people that for a certain position that, that wants to live in rural America. And uh, so that, that's a delicate thing. It, it's easier said than done to, to find that but and that's getting sometimes tougher and tougher i feel in rural america because nobody you know everybody's moving to the migrating to the cities or the you know the the, uh, the populated centers so that's a challenge and you may have to attract them with bigger salaries or you know fly them home weekends with with community jets and stuff uh, we'll have to adapt somehow and it, it'll always happen but it's becoming more and more of a challenge where rural america 15 years ago was not an issue and 
less and less people. As you can see, the whole world's migrating to the to the hubs, and we see it in North Dakota as well. Yeah. Well, I was, Steve, I was, if you don't mind me jumping in, I, I, I was saying that we have a great, uh, we have really a great uh, team of young managers and great management. Uh, almost every one of them was hired because we tap somebody on the shoulder and say, hey, you want to come work for us? Having an ad in the paper, those kinds of things is almost, it's almost useless as far as attracting people. So we we do it by watching people in the community and saying, hey, we've got a great place for you. That's the best way, isn't it? When you can observe, you can build a relationship, we can, as you say, tap them on the shoulder and talk to them. That, that's, the, that's the best way. Yeah. Well, guys, we're almost wrapped up here. I'm going to, normally I ask the magic wand question, but I'm going to turn around and say, based on your experience and how I kind of open this, of the great privilege I have, like almost everyone else, to be able to go to a, you know, a food market or a grocery store or whatever it is and, and buy what I need and take it so much for granted. And understanding that your industry is really complex, it's expensive to operate, um, and it's so necessary. There's so many variables and work-life balance. A lot of younger people struggle with that. And finding talent like Tom in, in parts of rural America is hard. All of that. Why? Why should someone that's listening to this podcast consider going in to the production side of agriculture? And I don't mean value added. I mean, why should somebody consider going into this incredible industry that we've talked about today? And I'll start with you, Wayne. Well, that's a that's a good question. I I think it's uh I think it's an, an industry that's constantly changing. Uh, piles of technology involved in it. It's uh, it, I often say to our guys, uh, fasten your seatbelts because it's gonna be it's gonna be so different. And so I think for for the young people that we have working for us, they just love the all the uh, the technology that's coming down the road, all these things they can implement. And and again, it's end of the day, what they love is producing food. So, yeah. Tom. Oh, uh, you know, as, as much as I complain and criticize agriculture at times, it's tough to beat um, going and pulling a potato plant up and checking for yields and that it's the nature, it's the outdoor, the natural things of food. You know, um, you know, you, you can water. I'm, I'm a, I like being outside and you can water it, you can plant it, but I'm also have strong faith for it. But God makes it grow, and to realize that, and to see that, just uh, I'm a farmer at heart. I've, you've you got to have it in your blood, and I think a lot of the people that are raised on farms don't like to leave, or some don't leave, will come back because something about feeding America, just feeling the dirt in your hands, pulling a potato plant, or walking out in a wheat field, you know, and taking a head and smushing in your hands, check to see if the moisture is ready or not. That's something that that's uh, hard to beat in any other industry. You're hmm. you know nailed down to a desk and stuff so i love that the, the farmer you know it's, it's just uh, all those things outside and, and growing crops is pretty tough to beat when it comes right down to it compared to a lot of other industries i did think of one last question that i think is pretty important the answer is critically important and this is for policymakers i don't care if you're local statewide province-wide, national. You guys, based on your experience, do you think there's any real need for any new regulation? Is there something that just dying to be inserted into your plan that you think needs to be there? Can you think of one that really has to be there? A new one? I'd say say no, for sure not. There's I could list, list 10 regulations and legislation that is hurting farmers and hurting America, for example, but uh, but uh, not, I don't think we need to new. Okay. Tom? Absolutely not. I, when I was been a politician for quite a few years and I was ran in my campaign, less regulation, less rules and laws, 
And that's a big part of our problem in America right now is over-regulated, over-control. And uh, so I would say absolutely 100% no. But <laughs> we, we've got, I could eliminate thousands of rules that would only help America help feed and drive down costs that are just common sense that sometimes people in these coasts and Washington have lost all sense of common sense. So mm. the answer to me is strong no. <laughs> Wayne and Tom, thank you so much for taking time. I know you guys are very, very busy. I appreciate you so much. Additionally, thank you for what you do. I, I'm going back to that grocery store analogy one more time. Were it not for you and your colleagues, I wouldn't have that great pleasure to walk through that climate-controlled restaurant and do my hunting, my fishing, my farming, and come back up my whatever. Because of you, I get to do that. And I thank you. God bless you guys, and enjoy the rest of your day. I so much appreciate you joining me today. Thank you, Mike. It was fun. Thank you, Mike. Make sure there's potatoes in your basket, too. So. <laughs> thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs>